Is there life after death? That's the question that someone in the church submitted when we were asking for questions for this series that we've been in. You asked for it. Is there life after death? And now if you polled most Americans, uh, the answer has been consistent for well over the last decade now. And three out of four Americans would clearly say yes. There is something after we die, something in the future. And if you were to ask Jesus the same question, is there life after death? He would agree. He would say, yes, there is life after death. So if you want to leave right now, you can. That's good. You can go. You got the question answered. You can go get your lunch and and beat everybody else. But when we answer this question, yes, there is life after death, it actually raises a lot of other questions. Like if there's life after death, well, what is that like? Is there really a heaven? Is there really hell? If so, who, who goes where? What's it like? I mean, what about my, my friends? What about my family? What about me? Why, why does this really matter? I mean, there's a lot of other questions that come along with this question. And so this morning, we're going to begin to dive deeper into some of those together. And as we do, I mean, I just want to acknowledge that all of us come to this conversation with kind of preconceived notions at some level about what happens after we die. And so I want to I do a little experiment. I want to invite you to kind of close your eyes, and I just want you to picture, picture heaven in your mind. If you're bold enough, raise your hand. How many of you like see harps and clouds? Anybody? Anybody see harps and clouds? White, maybe white, maybe some angels, loved ones. God, whatever God looks like to you, okay? Now, keep your, keep your eyes closed. Keep thinking. Now, I want you to, to picture hell in your mind. Maybe it's red instead of white, pitchforks, little devil running around somewhere. Maybe some of you see pain. Maybe some of you see uh, a lot of earthly pleasures like, like food, gambling, maybe people acting kind of kind of rowdy and others of you maybe you just kind of have you you do have pretty much a a blank slate in your mind okay you can open your eyes now now all of us have these ideas in our minds that we've picked up from along the way but I don't know if you've ever stopped and really asked yourself I mean where did I get these ideas and images from because for a lot of us I mean we get them from maybe our parents uh, maybe a, a pastor or Sunday school teacher along the way maybe uh, from watching cartoons on Saturday morning. Somebody gets hit with a little anvil and then, you know, they, they, they fly on up somewhere. Maybe you, you've gotten them from just historical literature, uh, movies. There's all sorts of different places that we get these images of what life after death is like. But a lot of us, including myself, you know, haven't spent throughout our lives, you know, a ton of time studying the scriptures to see what the scriptures have to say about this to help shape our own imaginations and our own notions of what this is going to be like. A lot of times we, we just kind of have inherited these views. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going, to, we're going to open up the scriptures together and look at some different passages to get an image of what life after death is like. And as we do, we're going to be opening up specifically to some of Jesus' words in the New Testament because Jesus... Remember, is God himself. He's, he's God incarnate in this world. And so if we're going to hear about life after death from anybody, it seems like it would make sense to learn it from God himself. 
And so uh, when you begin looking at Jesus' life and ministry as it's outlined in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that Jesus did have a fair amount to say about life after death. A lot of it came towards the end of his ministry. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25 this morning. In one of Jesus' final teaching moments with his disciples there in Jerusalem before he's crucified. And this passage might be a familiar one for you, but I just invite you to kind of open up your hearts, open up your minds, open up your ears once again. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, where Jesus gives a broad view of what things will be like. He says this, When the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking about himself there, comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the peoples one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. And they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger and eating clothes or sick in prison and didn't help you. And Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When he said these things, he told the disciples once again that in two days he was going to be crucified. He was going to suffer and die. So here in some of his final moments with his disciples, his final days, Jesus is teaching them something of first importance. He's teaching them about life after death, some truths about life, death, and eternity. And while sometimes Bibles label this as a parable or we think of it as a parable, um, really it's not a parable. I mean, Jesus is giving this here as a teaching, and he, he uses some comparisons. He uses a simile here, and he says, look, the righteous are like the sheep, and the unrighteous are like the goats, and he is the good shepherd. But this is a, really an apocalyptic image of the future, of what things will be like. And he says, look, there will be two groups. And he says, I will be the one separating the groups or judging the groups. And, and so one thing I want you to notice here is the fact that Jesus is the one who's doing the sorting and the sorting out of everything. And we have this picture of this day of judgment in the future when all nations, all people, the living and the dead will stand before him, will give an account for their lives. 
and he will separate them. And while this might seem scary or invoke fear, I mean, really for me, the, the fact that Jesus is the judge is a little comforting because it means that I don't have to be the judge of anyone. It means that you don't have to judge the eternal state of anyone. It means that Jesus is the judge and Jesus is full of love. Jesus is full of compassion. Jesus is full of justice. Jesus is holy. Jesus knows everything and he knows people's hearts. And so we can trust Jesus, the son of the living God, to judge people righteously and fairly. And as we find here, he says that the people will be separated into two different groups, each awaiting a different future. And one group, he says, you know, the first group who are at, at the right hand, which is the place of honor, those are, are the righteous, those who will inherit eternal life, this place that has been prepared for them. And in the Bible, this, this idea of eternal life There's a lot of different images and words used that are ultimately pointing to the same thing, the same moment or place in eternity. I mean, we read about heaven, we read about the kingdom of heaven, we read about the kingdom of God, paradise, new heavens and new earth, and ultimately they're pointing to this great day of fulfillment. And and now it can get a little complicated, and I'm not going to try to chart out all of this stuff because when it comes to death, I mean, we have our death here, we have what happens right after death, we, we have the return of Jesus, we have this day of judgment, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And so sometimes, you know, pastors will get up there with their charts and their timelines and they'll say, hey guys, it's next week and then it doesn't happen next week. And Jesus is like, hey, you don't have to figure everything out in details. In the early church, as they were forming their foundational beliefs in the creeds, like in the Apostles' Creed, it simply says this, look, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And so this image we get of eternal life with God is life everlasting. It's life. It's life with God. It's paradise, Jesus says. It will be glorious. It is a place prepared for us with many rooms. It's where we will spend time worshiping and fellowship with God our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we too will share in resurrected bodies. It is a place of good news. It is a place of joy, of salvation, where we are living in relationship with God and in relationship with one another. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 21, where it gives a beautiful image. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. All of those things have been wiped away. And Jesus says, this is a possibility for you. And we find throughout Jesus' teachings that this is his ideal for every single person in the world. That's why he came into this world. And when we begin to have this hope for heaven, this hope for eternal life with God, and we envision that future with him, I mean, it transforms how how we see our future. It transforms our lives now, but it also transforms how we view and how we even approach death. I mean, death in our culture is something we don't like to talk about, think about. We don't like to plan for, but we're not promised tomorrow. We only have today, but that hope of heaven can transform today and our mindset as we approach death. Some of you are familiar with Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a a prime minister in Great Britain during the war years, and uh, he was a man of faith, and he was a great planner. And, you know, I will, I will probably plan my own funeral in detail like he did. That's just who I am. I'm kind of a planner too. 
But he planned his own funeral in painstakingly detailed. It was at St. Paul's Cathedral there in the heart of London. If you've ever seen it, it kind of looks like the U.S. Capitol. It's, it's very grand, very beautiful. And so he lined up all of the great hymns that he loved, a great message. And then there was a benediction at the end. And Winston had arranged at the top of the dome for a bugler to be there. And as soon as they pronounced the benediction, the bugler began playing taps, which is the universal song that signals that the day has ended. Things are now over. Now it's time to rest. So the bugler played the song and got to the last note. And then as soon as that bugler played the last note, Winston, to the surprise of everyone there, had arranged for another bugler to be on the other side of the dome. And immediately that bugler began playing Reveille, which is the song that signals today is a new day, a new dawn has come. And so he wanted people to know, look, yes, the day has ended for me in this life, but there is hope in the next life. There is a future. The new day is just beginning. It transformed how he approached death. And this hope of heaven can transform how we approach death and even how we approach life as well. And Jesus says, look, this is a gift that you're able to receive. This is one place in eternity. But then we also see that Jesus reveals another possibility which is life apart from him. And I was reading this week, studying, and came across a sermon on Matthew chapter 25 from a seminary professor named Dr. David Siemens. And he, he noticed something I hadn't noticed before. He says, you know, if you notice, whenever Jesus is teaching about this final judgment and about eternity without him, most of his teachings come in the last week or two of his life. Early on, he, he wasn't going around talking about this a lot. Instead, he was offering the gift of salvation and the gift of eternal life with him, a new life here and now, forgiveness of sins, abundant life. He was offering that to people. And Dr. Seaman says it was only after people rejected Jesus and continually rejected him that he let them know, hey, here is what eternity without me will look like. And if you notice, Paul, John, other writers in the Bible, they, they rarely mention hell. They rarely talk about it. And, and Dr. Seaman says it's because of this. He says because it is such a terrifyingly serious and important subject that God would not trust anyone except his own son to give us the teaching on it. And so as you might imagine, I mean, Jesus had some things to say about it. And he gives different images, different apocalyptic images of what it'll be like weeping, unquenchable fire, gnashing of teeth, a place of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and a place of outer darkness. And so rather than a realm where we share with God in worship and in love and relationship for all eternity, ultimately it's a, it's a place without God. It's darkness living apart from him. Growing up, my, my grandpa, he grew up in rural South Carolina in Darlington. 
he used to tell us that, you know, growing up, all he heard sermons on was hell. Every week, week after week. He said it was hellfire and brimstone all the time. That's all he heard. And you know, when he told me that, I, I remembered that for a long time because I thought, well, I grew up in the church. And I don't really ever remember hearing a sermon on hell. And, and I, I think it's because it's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of us. Especially in our modern age, it's uncomfortable to think about. It's, it's uncomfortable to talk about. We don't like to think about death, much less life after death. But we can't just ignore the words of Jesus, even though, you know, a lot of times when we read these, these teachings, we just kind of want to like delete the last little sections of it. We can't ignore the words of Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And he's telling us here that he is the, the judge of all nations. He is the savior of all nations, but he's also the judge and that there is eternity and eternity is a reality for all of us. None of us will escape it. And thinking about eternity, some of you might have seen this. <clears throat> Francis Chan has a famous sermon illustration where he says, you know, one way to think about eternity is to think about a rope as your life, right? I mean, this rope, it just keeps going and going and going. It, it's a lot. And so if we think about our, our life as this rope, I mean, uh, this is eternity and this is our life here on this earth. But a lot of times, even, even though... Eternity goes on forever. We are so focused on the here and now that we just forget about this and we don't have an eternal perspective on things. He says a lot of us, you know, we're like, oh, you know what? I'm right here. I'm getting really old. Life is just passing me by. Or you know what? I'm going to save, 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 save so that I can enjoy everything I've done in this little tiny part of our lives. We make decisions focused on this tiny little section when we will all spend eternity somehow and somewhere. And so, so we have to keep an eternal perspective, the big picture going on here. But we have to also, while we're keeping an eternal perspective, also remember that this part of the rope matters. This part matters because here in this teaching and elsewhere, we find that what we do in this life echoes into eternity. That when Jesus, the great judge, is making decisions on that day of judgment, that his decision and how he responds to us will ultimately be connected with how we have responded to him here and now. And so we have to keep the big picture in mind. We have to keep paternity in mind. But we also have to realize that we've been given one life on this earth by God. And that life, it might be long, it might be short. But we've only been given today. And when we think about this life that God has given us, I mean, this isn't meant to be some kind of scare tactic or something. I mean, when we think about this life and we think about Jesus, I mean, there's hope. There's hope. I mean, in John chapter 3, there are some of the most 
famous words of the Bible, some of my favorite verses. John chapter 3, 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I love these verses because they, in a very simple form, share with us the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of his love. And my grandpa, after he was telling us that, you know, in his church he only heard hellfire and brimstone, he also told us, and this is sad, he said, it wasn't until I got married to your grandmother and we joined another church that I learned that God loves me. But friends, that's the good news. God loves you. He created you for a relationship with him. He created you out of love for love. And he wants to spend eternity with every single one of us. This is why he sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, into the world. Because when he looked out at the world and he saw the sin, he saw the suffering, he saw the darkness, he saw the ways we rebelled against him, turned our backs on him and said, God, we don't care, we're going to do what we want. And the ways we were sinning against each other and hurting one another, rather than just destroying things, he said, no, I'm going to come down, I'm going to redeem things, I'm going to save my people. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to send my son Jesus to live a righteous life, to give people a foretaste of heaven, what things are going to be like, to let people know, look, life with me is a life of abundance, a life of healing, a life of love. He sent Jesus to die on the cross, a sacrificial death, to bring us back in relationship with him, to reconcile us With him, Jesus did that out of love for us. Jesus died, but he rose again. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He rose again, and Paul says that his resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection and our life with God. Just as Jesus is now with God, our Father, so too, we too can share in that life with God, our Father, forever as well. And Scripture, I believe, is clear. God wants all people to be saved and to know this gift and to receive the work that Jesus has done on their behalf personally and to let it transform their lives. He wants each of us to spend eternity in relationship with him. And John tells us here that that all we have to do is, is to believe. And later, he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so we're called to believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, sent for us and our salvation so that we could have eternal life. But eternal life isn't just something in the future. It's also something that starts now. We're called to believe That the path we've been walking down isn't a fruitful path. It's a path away from God. It's not how he designed. We're called to repent. It's just a word that means to turn around and to follow and to begin following Jesus and moving towards God. We're called to believe that God has the power to transform our lives, our life in the future after death, and our life here and now. And I love how how John says in John chapter 10, Jesus speaking here, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. 
I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish for no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, when we come to Matthew 25, and and there's different ways to read this, and I've preached on it in many different angles before, but sometimes we we come to this and we're thinking about eternity and life, and we say, well, it looks like the people who did good deeds get into eternity with God simply because of their good deeds. And the people who do bad stuff go apart from God and and receive bad stuff. But but I, I think what Jesus is getting at here, when we look at the whole of Scripture in the New Testament, and Paul's teachings, I think what Jesus is getting at here is that these people are let into the kingdom of heaven because they know the shepherd. They're his sheep. They know his voice. They believe in him. They trust in him. They've been doing the shepherd's will throughout their lives. And so their good deeds of loving other people and loving people in need, these aren't the cause of their salvation. These are the effect of their salvation. The effect of believing in Jesus and letting him transform our life is that Jesus begins to replace our heart with his heart. And so rather than gratifying our own desires, Jesus helps move us from the inside out to go and to see people who have needs and to help meet their needs. To go out to the hungry to the people who who need clothing, to the people in prison, to the people who are struggling, to the people who have needs. God calls us to be his hands and feet. And so that's what we see here. These people, they have believed and they have now received this gift of salvation. When you believe in Jesus, he will begin to transform you. And he will begin to transform not only your, your future as your place in heaven with him is secured, but he will also transform your past as he forgives you and as he redeems your past, but he also transforms the present. He transforms the present and how we live, how we move, and how we have our being because eternal life can begin right now. Life with God isn't something that we just have to wait for. Long by and by, it can begin today. And he wants all of us to share in that life, even now. But what about those who say no to Jesus and reject him in this life? It's a sobering question. And I I think Jesus is telling us here, and we find elsewhere in Scripture, that what we do in this life echoes into eternity. And so if throughout our life we say, no, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. No, God, I don't want you in my life. God has given us the freedom to do that. Because, as we talked about last week, true love is truly chosen. God lets us reject him. Now, God will pursue us. He will pursue us day after day until the final moment of our life, hoping that we turn to him. But I do think that God will honor our wishes. And that if we don't want anything to do with him in this life, he won't force us to be with him in the next life. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, puts it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you don't want life with me, that's your choice. And that's a difficult thing to think about, and there's no rejoicing in that. But of course, all of this raises a lot of questions. I don't have the answer to every question, but there's a lot of questions that are still left after this teaching. I mean, what about children? about infants? What about those who, who don't have the cognitive ability to believe in Jesus, receive him into their lives? Well, I think here we have to come back and remember that Jesus is the judge. He's loving, he's compassionate, he's just, he knows us. And when we look at Jesus and his love for children throughout the scriptures and his love for the marginalized people and people at the edges, I think it's clear that they will share an eternal life with him one day. And that's what I've proclaimed at the funerals of, of babies and children. But then there's other questions. I mean, what about people who just live terrible lives? They're terrible people. But maybe at the last moment, they said, Jesus, you know what? Finally, I believe. I mean, what about them? Think back to the thief on the cross who was crucified next to Jesus. All of his friends and family thought he was going to spend eternity without God, and they probably died thinking that. But there in that final moment of his life, he, he said to Jesus, he signaled that, that he believed. And Jesus said, look, today you will be with me in paradise. He transformed that man's past through forgiveness and his future and prepared a place in paradise with him. And there's other questions, like what about those who've never heard the name of Jesus? There are people groups all over the world. Once again, God is loving, God is compassionate, God knows everything, God is just. We have to rest in that and we have to know our calling is to go and to share the good news with all people. God wills all people to be saved. How, how that sorts out in the end, I don't know. That's a whole, whole other sermon that we could get into. Salvation comes only through Jesus. But when a lot of us are asking these questions, you know, well, what about that person? What about that person? What about these people who've never heard? I think sometimes it's a reflex to keep us from really having to wrestle with the deeper questions. The deeper questions about our life, people who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Because we have heard. We have heard, and so the question for us is how have we responded to Jesus in this life? How are we responding to Jesus? How will we respond to him in the future? That's the most important question for you and for me this morning. So I want to invite you to, to just close your eyes and have a moment of silence to think about that question. How have you responded to Jesus? Who is he for you? 
We're not going to play any music. The sermon wasn't meant to manipulate anybody into making any kind of decision. This isn't a production or a show. These are the words of Jesus, and Jesus loves you. He loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you now and in eternity. He wants to give you life, forgiveness, love, restoration. And we find throughout Scripture that all we have to do to begin that relationship is to believe. To say to Jesus, Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are. Son of God and the Savior of the world. I believe that your way of life is better than my way of life and I want to turn and follow you. All you have to do is to believe and let him transform you from the inside out. And when you do that, That decision echoes into eternity. It secures your place with God. And so if you've never, if you've never responded to Jesus, maybe you've never heard of Jesus till this morning, or you never knew that he loved you. Maybe you're like my grandpa. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite you in the stillness of this moment to simply say in your heart to him in your own words, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. I believe your way of life is better than my way of life and I turn from that old way of life. Jesus, I believe that you have the power to transform me now and in the future. And if it's you and you're saying you believe this morning for the very first time, I mean, if you're willing to raise your hand just so I can acknowledge you and help you on this journey of transformation... And for a lot of us in here, I mean, maybe you're at that place like I, I was many, many years throughout my life of saying, well, yeah, I, I believe, but, but I, I still don't know if I'll, I'll spend eternity with God. I don't know. I mean, I hear these messages and I'm just not, not sure. Well, I, I want to let you know that, that God wants to give you assurance of your salvation. And Paul says in Romans that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so I just want to ask you to say to God, God, give me an assurance of your love. Give me an assurance of my salvation. Let me know in the depths of my heart that I am yours and you are mine. That's a gift he wants to give to you. He wants to give us the gift of assurance. He wants to give us the gift of eternal life. He wants to give us the gift of a transformed life here and now where we don't just wait for eternity to happen, but we begin to live out the future ideals of eternity here and now by clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for those who are in need. And so God, we ask you in these moments that you would give us your good gifts. God, fill us with your love. Fill us with an assurance of our salvation. 
God, give us renewed hearts and transformed hearts to see people in need and to do something about those needs around us. God, we know that you say faith without works is dead. God, give us as a church a living faith this morning. And we ask all of these things in your son's holy and precious name.